<laughs> no, but uh, our ministry is all about defending the faith to equip Christians to answer the skeptical questions of this age, stand on God's word in order to boldly proclaim the gospel. And in case you're not as familiar with us, I'll share a couple of quick things. We've got the Creation Museum located in northern Kentucky, just below Cincinnati. That's kind of our hub at the Creation Museum. 75,000 square foot institution walks you through biblical history. We're answering tough questions of this age, showing people God's word is true in all things. We also did a similar thing with an attraction down the road from there, about 40 miles south of Cincinnati, something called the Ark Encounter. We are those people who built the Ark. You guys heard about that? The life-size replica that is Answers in Genesis. And uh, some beautiful pictures of that. I thought I'd show you a little video of that, just to give you an idea of what that's kind of looking like. I'll turn down the music so I can talk over it. But there it is. We've actually added a lot more to the Ark Encounter since this video was taken. It's actually old now. We've added tons of stuff on the sides, a lot of pre- I have kind of cool-looking city structures, different restaurants, story of biblical history, the creation of the fall, and so forth. But the ark itself is built to scale. That is a life-size replica of the ark. It's over a football field and a half in length, over 500 feet long. It's 85 feet wide and 51 feet tall, three different levels. Those are the biblical dimensions we get in God's Word. Over 100,000 square feet on the inside. The capacity of the ark was equal to around 500 railroad stock cars. That's like an eight-mile-long train, all right? tons of space inside the ark and as you go through the ark we got wonderful exhibits answering the tough questions related to that historical event how did noah get the animals onto the ark where did the water come from where did it go what about could the ark withhold the conditions during the flood stuff like that answering those questions showing people god's word is true and then multiple places through the ark we have the gospel presented because again our heartbeat is to give answers to give the answer. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but the word apologetics, it does not mean to apologize. Right? It means to actually to give a defense, like a lawyer in a courtroom, making your case. That's what apologetics means, apologia in the Greek, to give a defense. So we can stand on God's word, answer those questions, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned yesterday in the first talk, we are so passionate about this because we have got, noticed that God's word is under attack. Have you guys noticed that? Not that hard to see, right? It is under attack, and we're seeing the consequences of that attack. And the fact that God's word is under attack is nothing new, and it should not surprise us. We're actually warned in 2 Corinthians 11:3 to watch out, that just as the serpent deceived Eve, she will try, he will try to deceive us in the same way. So we go back to Genesis 3. How did the serpent deceive Eve? Well, he said to her, did God really say? It's a very subtle attack, but very effective because notice what he was doing, in case you weren't here. He's getting Eve to question God's word, to doubt God's word, so she will reject God's word. And that attack was so effective, he has used it ever since. Different forms, but same basic attack. And we suggest one of the main ways he's doing this today is through the teaching of things like evolution, which we talked about yesterday, eight men. Big Bang, millions of years, we talked about that as well. Using those sorts of ideas to get people to question God's word, to doubt God's word, to reject God's word. In a real sense, it's been like a stealth attack by the enemy who's attacked the history of the Bible to undermine its authority, to undermine the gospel that's based in that authority. Because if we put this just in a very simple way, this makes sense. If we cannot believe the Bible's history, why trust it about salvation? If we can't trust the Bible when it talks about earthly things, why should we trust it when it talks about heavenly things? I told the last service, I heard a pastor recently say, he asked his congregation rather, he says, what do you guys think is the most important verse in the Bible? 
And what do you think they said in response for the most part? John 3, 16, right? Who can argue with that wonderful gospel verse? And he said, you know what? I hear what you guys are saying. I understand. He said, let me suggest this. I suggest the most important verse in the Bible is Genesis 1, 1. Because if it's not true, none of the rest of it is either. Either God's word is the authority in all things or it's the authority in nothing. Those are the two options. And by the way, the secularists, the non-believers, they understand this is a great way to attack God's word by attacking the history to undermine its authority. I'll show you a couple of examples of this really quickly. We did a couple yesterday, but these are different ones. I want to show you a little video of a guy named Richard Dawkins. You might know who Richard Dawkins is. A few of you, he's the Pope of atheism nowadays. I call him an atheist evangelist. He feels like it's his purpose in life to let you know you have no purpose in life. That's what he's passionate about, all right? He's very passionate about his religion of atheism. And he did a video series on YouTube called Mr. Deity and the Atheist. And it's basically a conversation between God and an atheist from his perspective, of course. And as you might imagine, in these videos, the atheist is always quite brilliant, and God is usually pretty dumb. And that's the case in this particular video as well. Uh, but I want you to see this video. Uh, the guy representing God is the guy with the glasses, and Richard Dawkins is the guy with the cool British accent. All right? And so as you listen to this, just recognize this is an example of where we're seeing God's word under attack by attacking the history with ideas like evolution. You know, it seems to me that if you really want to be useful, you could do us all a favor and simply vanish. Oh, yeah. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Very much, because the whole of your precious creation was made by evolution, and you didn't have to lift a finger to help it along. You're completely redundant, not just lazy. Even if you weren't lazy, there'd be nothing for you to do. Is that right? Yes. And what's more, we have science now making you completely unnecessary. Wow. God, you're lazy, you're redundant, and you are unnecessary. But aside from his snarkiness and, of course, his, just his rebellion against God, which is what that is, we, Richard Dawkins needs to get saved. Amen? That's what needs to happen. He's rebellion against his Savior. He needs to get saved. But, but notice the general tenor of what he's saying. We know the Bible's not true. We know uh, you don't need the Bible. Why? Because evolution has disproven the Bible. We can explain all of life without God. We don't need it anymore. Attacking the history of the Bible would undermine its authority. Let me give you one more example of this. Kind of a different angle, but similar thing. I want to show you a video from the History Channel, a series they did called Bible Secrets Revealed. Now, you may have seen some of that, maybe watched parts of it. Uh, but it gives you a good summary of the secular view of the Bible, how they view the Bible. And basically, if you watch the whole series... Uh, what they will essentially conclude is that the Bible is not written by God. It's not supernatural. Actually, it was written by men to manipulate the masses, more or less. That's their conclusion. And, uh, but this is how they present it, and it's very convincing to a lot of people, especially uh, younger people. But it's just many generations, honestly. And they just want to convince you the Bible is not God's word. Why? Because it's not really reliable. Its history is not really true. Uh, so really understand what it is. So this is an attack on the history of God's word. But it's very convincing because of how well done it is. Check this out. It is considered by millions to be the actual word of God. The Holy Testament. The sacred scripture. The Bible. For centuries, men and women have argued its means, its lessons, and its historical accuracy. But has the Bible been translated, edited, and even censored 
so many times that its original stories have been compromised by time? People want to know, this is what God said, I'm going to do it, that's it, it's in the Bible. The Bible may be divinely inspired, but there are human fingerprints all over it. It's very dangerous to use the Bible as a pretext for anything. We really don't know who the people are who put the New Testament together. It is one of the most important books ever written. Its contents have been studied, debated, and fought over for thousands of years. But does the Bible also contain secrets? Secret prophecies? Secret characters? Secret texts? Now, for the first time, an extraordinary series will challenge everything we think, everything we know, and everything we believe about the Bible. Hollywood level production, right? Really is. It's really well done. Music's really well. It's dramatic. It's gripping. It's a fa- you know, it's fun to watch. It really is. But notice the basic message. If you watch all the videos, this is what they will basically say. All the supernatural stuff in the Bible is bogus. It is written by men. And nowadays, we can use real science to explain that stuff away. That's the theme you see all the way through. Basically, you can summarize it with this phrase. Did God really say? Can you really trust this book? And, of course, they say no. And they will say science disproves it. And that's why it's so important we're ready to give an answer for our faith, where the attack is happening today. And so often Christians will say to me, okay, Brian, I get that, but hold up. Before we go any further, here's my question to you. Christians have lots of different views on lots of things, right? Different views of eschatology, end times, different views of uh, baptism and speaking in tongues. They have lots of different views on different things. But can't we as Christians in a similar way have different views of Genesis? Isn't that the same? That's a good question, but it's actually not. It's polar opposites. Let me show you what I mean. Let's just take eschatology for an example, a study of end times. There are lots of different views of eschatology within Christianity. You have things like pre-mill. There's post-mill, there's odd-mill, and, and there's windmill, and there's treadmill, <laughs> sawmill, cornmill. Cornmill's popular in the South, all right? Just take my word for it, but <laughs> no. But, but here's the thing. For, with most of these views, besides some really weird extreme ones, they're staying within the Bible. And exotology in times can be hard to understand. So they're comparing Ezekiel with the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. They're using Scripture to understand Scripture. They're saying within the Word of God. And they do get some different conclusions, but the point is they're staying within the Bible. That is not how you, di- you get different views of Genesis. The only way to get different views of Genesis is by doing this. Taking ideas outside of the Bible that, not, that are not in the text and trying to squeeze those into God's word. Ideas like uniformitarianism, evolution, millions of years, Big Bang, naturalism, and trying to pose those ideas into the text. And then basically, here's what we're doing. We're taking man's ideas and reinterpreting, reinterpreting God's clear word. And that is never a good idea. In the first example, we're staying within Scripture. In the second example, we're importing ideas outside of the Bible into the text. And the Bible's clear. You do not add to or take away from God's Word. You leave it alone. It's God's Word. He's the authority, not us. And someone would say, okay, I mean, that makes sense, but 
Still, Brian, it's just Genesis. It can't be that important. And as I said yesterday, I think that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. We gave a bunch of examples of this yesterday, but ultimately, Genesis is the foundation to every single biblical doctrine, either directly or indirectly. And if you destroy the foundation of something, what will happen to the structure? It's going to fall. Let me show you this way. Think about it like this. God's word has been under attack since Genesis 3. It has. We agree on that. But in our day and age, it's come in the forms of things like this, millions of years. And here's what happened. This idea came along. When it came in, it didn't hit the cross directly. It missed the cross. And so most Christians at that point, early 1800s and up to today, will say, whew, that was close. Dodged a bullet. We're okay. Missed the cross. But you know what? Even though it did not hit the cross, you know what it did hit? Well, it hit the foundation to the cross, that foundational history in the book of Genesis. And even though many Christians are, they're sure, that's no, okay, it's not a big deal. The enemy, we've got to recognize, he's very clever. Think about it. He recognizes that if in our day and age he attacked the cross, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of the Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, would most Christians recognize that as an attack on God's word? Yes, we would. And we would push back against that. We would fight against that. So what's he do? Well, he shifts his sights down to the foundation, the foundational history in the book of Genesis, recognizing that to most Christians, that's just a side issue, and they won't even try to defend it. And indeed, we haven't. And the attacks have poured in with these sorts of ideas, leaving the foundation in shambles. And even today still, many Christians say it's okay, miss the cross. The devil knows it was a direct hit. Because once the foundation goes, what's going to happen to the structure? It's going to fall, just like we see happening today. Yesterday, we detailed the devastating attacks of this attack on God's word. Uh, if you weren't here, around two-thirds of kids today who grew up in the church today are walking away from the faith by the time they reach college age. And these two-thirds are kids who grow up in church. They're involved. Two-thirds of those are walking away, and that's horrific enough. We went into a lot of detail on that particular issue. But then there's a secondary question. All right, if two-thirds are walking away because this attack on God's word, they don't think you can trust the Bible, therefore they reject the gospel. If two-thirds are walking away because of that, then what about the one-third who grew up in the church and stayed? They grew up, they went to college, they're still in the church. How have they been affected by this attack on God's word? How has it affected their view of Scripture and the biblical understanding of the world around them? So we wanted to answer that question. So we did a research project uh, looking at a lot of millennials, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, to see how they've been affected by this particular attack published in the book Ready to Return. And these people are important. Why? Because these 20-somethings, these 30-somethings represent the next generation of leadership in the church. These people represent where the church is headed. So what do they believe? How have they been affected by this attack? Well, according to research, we asked them, do you consider yourself to be born again? 45% said no. Or they're not sure. I recognize these are the kids who grew up in the church and stayed. Do you believe if you are a good person, you will go to heaven? About 65% said yes. Which is literally the opposite of the gospel, is it not? A fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Do you believe all other books, they gave the Quran as an example, are inspired by God? 35% said yes, or they don't know. Does the Bible contain errors? Around 40% said yes or they don't know. Should gay couples be allowed to marry? Around 50% said yes or they don't know. Is homosexuality a sin? 45% said no or they're not sure. And this represents where the church is headed today. 
I'm going to tell you, these stats so reflect what I saw when I was teaching Bible history in a public school in Tennessee for 13 years in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Teaching Bible history really is a great thing to do. But it's funny, all the kids, not all the kids, many of my kids who came to my classroom, they had some sort of Christianized background to some degree or another, buckle the Bible belt, right? And they would claim to some degree, a lot of them, to be Christians. But then you ask them their beliefs about key issues, uh, biblical authority, what about marriage and abortion and so forth and so on. And so much of the time, their views on those things were totally secular, They claim to be Christian, but truly, this book was not their authority. Why? Because they had learned a lesson from some of the previous generations where we told them, you know what, you can take man's ideas and reinterpret certain parts of the Bible like the beginning. They're thinking, okay, if we can take man's ideas and reinterpret the beginning, why not take man's ideas and reinterpret the middle and the end? If God's was not the authority in all things, why trust it in anything? And I can't help but think of Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, the 24, 25 here. When Jesus said this, he who hears these words of mine and acts on them, it's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall. Because it was built on the what? The rock. If you build on the rock, you can stand strong. That's the way we used to be in a lot of ways as a culture. But compare that to the other option. Those who hear these words of mine and do not act on them, it's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Does that not sound like our culture today? Why? Because we have shifted foundations away from God's word to man's word as the ultimate authority. Each person decides their own truth. Morality is relative in our culture today because man's word is seen as the ultimate authority. We're seeing the foundational change of our culture. And we as Christians, for the most part, we're looking out to the culture. We're looking at all these, all these issues, and we think to ourselves, we've got to fight against those things and truth and love. And we do things like so-called gay marriage and abortion, euthanasia. But, friends, those things are not the problems. They're the symptoms. They're the symptoms of a loss of biblical authority in our day and age. And for all the time and money, we have spent trying to fight those symptoms and change the culture, mold the culture as we want it. We're becoming less Christian every day. Our efforts are not working. Why? Because in a real sense, what we're trying to do is change the culture. As we mentioned yesterday, nowhere in the Bible does it say go into the world and change the culture. The Bible says go into the world and preach the what? Preach the gospel to make disciples. That God will change people from the inside out. That will change their worldview. That will change the culture. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? One more time? Amen. All right. Very good. Always has been and it always will be. But with that being said, let me ask two kind of strategic questions in regards to this. What is the gospel? And then how do we share the gospel with the culture? Well, many today in our culture, they don't believe the gospel. Why? They don't believe the book from which the gospel comes. How do we approach that sort of culture? So with all that being said, and that's my introduction. I promise you won't be here for millions of years. All right. But with all that being said... I'm going to propose a radical idea. It's pretty radical. You ready? I'm going to suggest, and we suggest as a ministry, that a great way, not the only way, but a great effective way to share the gospel to a culture like ours in our day and age, a great way to share the gospel in our day and age, is to do it the way God did it in the Bible by starting at the beginning. Right? Doesn't it just seem to make sense to start at the beginning? 
Kind of obvious that would be good. Yeah, start at the beginning. It's pretty obvious. It's like the answer to the question, where do you find a dog with no legs? Right where you left him. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> obvious. He's got one trick. Stay. Good dog. Uh, what do you call a dog with no legs? Doesn't matter. He won't come anyway. Obvious. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. You get the idea. It does seem obvious to start at the beginning. You read a book from the beginning, watch a movie from the beginning. That's how you understand the storyline. Starting at the beginning of the Bible, we recognize it was a perfect creation. But then man's sin, bringing death and suffering into this world. And that's why we need a Savior. Bottom line, before people can understand the good news of the New Testament, they've got to understand the bad news in Genesis. The bad news that it was perfect, but it's been marred by sin. We all need a Savior, Jesus Christ. Put another way. Before people see their need to be saved, they need to understand they are lost. <laughs> Here's a silly example. I was kind of thinking about it this way. Let's say you got a parachute. you got a parachute, and, and you like your parachute. It's really good for you. You, you. Just like your parachute. And so you walk up to a random stranger. Hey, I've got this parachute. Would you like to have it? It's great. They probably look at you and think, that's weird. <laughs> Glad you like your parachute. That's awesome for you. I enjoy your parachute. Go away now, all right? I don't really understand. That's fine. It's not good for you. But what if, let's say you get your parachute and you walk up to a, a random stranger, but different scenario. This time, as you walk up to the stranger and you offer your parachute, this time you're on a plane. Both engines are on fire. And the plane's going this way. And you say, hey, would you like my parachute? Do you think they want it? They might punch you and take it, right? <laughs> I don't know. It depends on who you're talking to. No. When they see their need, then they want it. Same thing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must see our need starting at the beginning because it's a broken world. We need a Savior. And so when I think about sharing the gospel to a secular culture like ours, I think there are three major aspects we should strive to communicate as we do so to be effective from a human perspective. The first one is going to be this. To help people understand Christ is the creator. And it was indeed a perfect creation. You see, God gave us what he wanted, perfection. It was kind of funny. Uh, when the atheist says, and we all say this at some point in our own way, but when the atheist says there's no way a good God made a world like the one we live in today with so much death and suffering, disease and destruction, ironically, they're right. You see, did God make a world like the one we live in today? Understand your biblical history. God made a perfect creation. He gave us what he wanted, which was perfection. Who wrecked this world? We did in our sin. And you don't blame the manufacturer for the perfectly good car that you wrecked. We wrecked this creation. And God shows us up by providing the bridge of salvation even after we have rebelled and wrecked his creation. No, but God gave us a perfect creation. But then man's sin, bringing death and suffering into this world. And that really is the fundamental knowledge we need to have in place to understand the next major aspect of the gospel. And that is this part. <laughs> so good. God became flesh. You ever stop and just thought about that? The infinite confined to the finite. The timeless. God lives outside of time, confined to time. All-powerful, restricted. I mean, unbelievable. God became flesh. Why? To pay the debt we could never pay. The perfect, infinite price we could never pay. He became of our blood. He became part of the human race, our relative, so he could pay our debt on our behalf. That, if you'll repent of your sin, turn away, focus on Christ, make him your Lord and Savior, confess him as Lord, you will be saved. And, of course, that is the power of the gospel, which we are also thankful for. 
And then you have the coming consummation, when there is no more death, no more suffering, no more pain, no more cancer. Anybody else looking forward to that? Hallelujah. All right? And that is the hope of the gospel. And so we've got the foundational knowledge, the power of the gospel, and the hope of the gospel. And guys, truly, I think for the most part within our culture today, the Western culture at large, we tend to focus on the power and the hope of the gospel and not the foundational stuff. And it is the foundation that's under attack. And if that foundation goes, the rest goes with it. So with that in mind, then how should we be striving to share the gospel to a secular culture like ours? A couple of verses we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We read this. We read, we preach Christ crucified. In a sense, we preach the gospel. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Why the difference? Why was the gospel a stumbling block to the Jews, but foolishness to the Greeks? Well, to understand that and how it applies to our culture today, I want to quickly look at two sermons from the book of Acts. Very quickly. Acts 2 and Acts chapter 17. You go to Acts chapter 2, you got Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost to a mainly Jewish audience. Acts 17, Paul preaching to mainly a Greek audience over in Athens. And here's the thing. In both cases, they're both preaching the gospel. That's the main. They're both preaching the gospel. But they're, the, they're approaching the gospel from two very different angles. Why? Because they're speaking to two very different audiences. And here's the thing. If we want to be effective in communicating today, we must understand who we are talking to. We've got to understand our audience True story, about 10 years ago, I was at my in-law's house for Thanksgiving. And uh, my wife has two sisters, and all three of them look alike, especially 10 years ago. And so we had a Thanksgiving meal. And we had, <laughs> some of y'all giggling already. <laughs> I haven't told the story yet. Hold on, all right? Uh, but you're right. Anyway, the, uh, so we had, you know, had the meal, broke up, we broke apart, guys, girls separated. I got thirsty, go to the kitchen to grab a drink. Coming to the kitchen, my mother-in-law, Kathy, calls my name, love her to death. We look over here. She's by the refrigerator. We're having a quick little conversation about something I don't know what. In my peripheral vision, I see my wife right here leaning over the counter, reading something off the counter. A little further over, I see her sister Amy holding her newborn baby. I didn't bother looking, just in my peripheral vision. I played sports growing up. I was a point guard in college. I got this good peripheral. Wife, sister-in-law, we're good. Talking. So, as we were talking, I think to myself, I want to love on my wife. Because I love my wife. So I scooted over a little bit, start rubbing her back. Never looked, just rubbing her back. I go for two hands, all right, a little circle pattern, you know. And I start massaging the shoulders. I'm smart, all right? Brownie points for later. I understand how this works, all right? And so as we're wrapping up our quick little conversation, I think to myself, I'm going to kiss my wife because I love my wife. And so I lean down all the way across her back to give her a kiss on the cheek. And I look up. There's my wife, <laughs> holding her sister's baby, looking at me like I done lost my mind, all right? <laughs> Here's my sister-in-law, Amy, frozen in fear. If you could have seen her face, she was petrified, all right? She really was. And, of course, I'm just in shock. I'm back away. I'm stuttering. I'm like, Amy, I'm so sorry. Like, why didn't you say something? She said, I didn't understand what you were doing. It's like, I just froze. <laughs> uh, bottom line, I did not communicate what I thought I was communicating because I did not understand who I was communicating with. All right? Audience is really, 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 really important. All right. So 
<laughs> With that in mind, let's look at these two sermons very quickly. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost again, Peter to a Jewish audience. And if I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll paraphrase it if you don't mind. He said to them, you crucified the Son of God. You've nailed the Messiah to the cross. And God has raised him up from the dead. And it says they were cut to the heart. And they say, wow, they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, well, repent and be saved. And then as a result of that very eloquent sermon, around 3,000 people truly got saved. All at one time, and heaven rejoices. And guys, wouldn't we all love to see something like that happen in our neck of the woods? Wouldn't that be awesome? Where hundreds or thousands of people genuinely get saved all at the same time. You know, it seems like we used to see this sort of thing happening back in the day, right? Years ago. Didn't this used to happen, or at least it seemed to? doesn't happen so much today. Why is that? We'll get that here in a moment. But we call what Peter did there in Acts 2 very cleverly the Acts 2 approach to evangelism. And I'll suggest this is what we mainly do in Christianity today, especially in the West, is mainly an Acts 2 approach to evangelism. So what is this approach? Notice who Peter is preaching to. Mainly Jews, right? At that point in their history, when he said the word God to this audience, did he have to define who God was or could he assume they knew who God was? They knew, right? They believed in the God of the Old Testament. They believed in the right God. They knew who God was. No problem there. When he said sin to this particular audience, did he have to define what sin was? Or could he assume they knew what sin was? They knew. They had the law of Moses, right? They knew what sin was, lying, stealing, adultery, so forth and so on. They understood the terms Peter was using. Why? Because they already had in place the right foundation to understand those terms. They believed in the biblical history, Adam and Eve as real people, they sin. Death came as a consequence. We all need a savior. You see, they had the right foundation. They had the right starting point. And that put them on the right road. But their stumbling block was the message of the cross. You see, Peter was preaching to a group of people who already had in place the right foundation to understand the words he was using. To me, this is really similar to that old show, Extreme Home Makeover. Anybody remember that show? Back in the day, if, if you don't remember, it would be basically there's a family in need. Their house is breaking down. They would ship the family off to Disney World for a week. They'd bring 100 people in. They would tear the house down, build it back up in seven days, bring the family back home, move that bus. Everybody cried. Right? That's <laughs> it's how it went down every time. It really did. And uh, you watch it. It was fun to watch because they could tear the house down and build it up in seven days. Because what do they typically leave in place? The foundation. If the foundation's there, the structure can't go down and up fairly quickly. And in a real sense, from a human perspective, as Peter's engaging these people in Acts chapter 2, he did not have to deal with the foundational stuff. It was already there. He just had to deal with the structure that Jesus is the Messiah he claimed to be and that the cross was necessary. And to me, Acts 2 and what we see there is very similar to something we were seeing in America and throughout the West back in the 50s and 60s. There was this evangelist making his rounds, and there were, it appears, a lot of people getting saved at these crusades. And who was that guy? Billy Graham. And again, from a, at least a human perspective, it's hard to argue. It would appear that a whole lot of people were getting saved. And uh, what was his approach to evangelism? Wasn't it mainly just an Acts 2 approach? You're a sinner. You need Jesus. Put your faith in him. And from our perspective, it seemed to work really, really well. It seems that people were truly getting converted. But we don't see this same sort of thing happening today in our culture, do we? Why not? Well, can we all agree 
that back in the day it was a different culture than we see today? Back in the 50s and 60s, could you walk into a school and maybe hear a teacher reading from a Bible? That's okay. They'd be praying. That'd be fine. Could you walk into Walmart back then and say, Merry, Merry Christmas, and I feel like you're breaking the law? No, Walmart's went around. But you get the idea. Right. It was a different culture. Back then, if you walked into a public school, back in the 50s and 60s, and you asked one of the students about God, they would most likely think of the God of the Bible. Ask them about sin, they would know what sin is, basically. Try that today. Walk into a public school, go to a university campus, ask a kid about God. What do you think is the first question you'll get in response? Which one, right? You talk about one of the Hindu gods, one of the Buddhist gods, or Allah. You talk about, hey, you talking about me? I'm an atheist. I'm God. Which God are you talking about? It's a different culture. Talk to them about sin, right and wrong. What? There is no right or wrong. I do what I want to do. You do what you want to do. Just don't get in each other's way. It's a different culture. And guys, I will suggest from a human perspective, an actual approach to evangelism doesn't work that well in America any longer because essentially we are no longer an Acts 2 type culture. We used to be much more like that, but we have changed. And the seculars have noticed from the Free Inquiry and Atheist publication back in 2010, they said this, a historic transition is occurring barely noticed. Slowly, quietly, imperceptibly, religion, really Christianity, is shriveling in America as it already has in Europe, Canada, Australia, across the developed world. Increasingly, supernatural faith belongs to the third world. The first world is entering the long-predicted secular age where science and knowledge dominate. And as we saw yesterday, Newsweek, back in 2009, the decline and fall of Christian America, that was their cover, and they said inside, a good observation, they said this, the present in this sense is less about the death of God, more about the birth of many gods. We used to be one nation under God, now we're one nation under many gods. Isn't it great? We used to be more like Acts 2, now we're much more like the Greeks in Acts chapter 17 who had many gods. And if you go to Athens, you look at Paul preaching the book of Athens to these Greeks. He preached the gospel to the Greeks there. And there, in his first encounter with them, he preached the gospel. And their initial reaction to the gospel essentially was something like this. Say what? (laughs) Notice the word. What is this babbler going on about? Right? He's babbling. He's talking about some dude raising from the dead and advocating foreign gods. It was ridiculous to them. Remember, the gospel to the Jews was a what? Stumbling block. But to the Greeks, it was foolishness. Now, the big question, why the difference? Well, notice who Paul is preaching to. He's preaching to Greeks. And there are different philosophies within Greeks, of course. You had uh, the ones he's speaking speaking to, the Epicureans, and they believed in evolution and pleasure was the chief good of all existence. Uh, The Stoics, they were pantheists. Uh, By the way, that's just another form of evolutionism. A little side note here, Darwin did not invent evolution. He just popularized a particular form of it. But in general, the Greeks believed that many gods and the gods evolved. So they had a totally different foundation. So when Paul said to these people, when he says the word God, they're thinking, which God, Paul? We got a bunch of them, kind of like people today. When he said sin and talked about death as a consequence, they're thinking sin, what is sin? There's no right or wrong. And Paul, death's a good thing. Death brings about change over time, which is essentially what evolution teaches. You see, they did not understand the terms. Why? Because they did not have the right foundation to understand those terms. 
Paul may have been using the same words Peter used, but the people he was speaking to had the wrong foundation, so they did not understand those words in the right biblical sense. And if we want to be effective in communicating with people, we must be sure that as we talk to them, that they understand the words we're using the same way we mean them. And if they don't, it's really easy to miscommunicate. I'll give you one example of this. A couple years ago, doing a conference in Indiana, driving down the road, I see a sign for a restaurant. And there's a logo on the sign to try to, I guess, draw you into this restaurant. But as I saw uh, the wording of the sign, it did not inspire me to eat at this particular restaurant. This is a real sign. Here's what it said. I didn't go. I wasn't hungry anymore. Uh, Now, to be fair to the, to the owners, it was a restaurant attached to a gas station, of course. But you get the idea, right? I still didn't go. It didn't matter. I didn't like the sign. I'm not going to risk it, all right? It's just not worth it. <laughs> no, we've got to be sure people we are talking with understand the words we're using the same way we mean them. And if they don't, we're not going to communicate. So kind of thinking of putting this all together a little bit, the Jews in Acts 2 were a creation-based culture. They believed in history and Genesis. They understood death as a consequence for sin, but their stumbling block was the message of the cross. But for the Greeks, well, they were evolution-based culture. They didn't even understand the terms. Therefore, the gospel to them was foolishness. I'm going to recognize those Greeks had a totally different starting point, a different foundation. That put them on a different road. And that different road their own does not lead up to the message of the cross. Now, if we want that Greek to understand the message of the cross, we've got to do something. We've got to give them the right starting point, the right foundation to put them on the right road so they can understand the message of the cross in context. And you know, that's exactly what Paul did the second time around. He got to speak again to the Greeks over at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And as he's preaching to them, he said, I perceive that you guys are really religious. He says, I see all your, all your idols and all your temples. And he said, you know what, I even found an idol to an unknown God. He said, you know what? This unknown God, I'm going to proclaim to you who that God is. So he goes on to tell them. The God you don't know, watch this. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the creator God, going back to the beginning. Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He doesn't need anything from us. He gives life to all things. He is God. He's creator God. He is defining who God is, going back to the beginning. He goes on to say to them that we are all of one blood. We are all related. What an amazing thought. Because Paul understood that history. We all go back to Adam and Eve. That's why there's one race, a human race. It's also why we're all sinners and need a Savior, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So he's laying that foundation, taking them back to the beginning, giving them the right starting point so they can get on the right road and properly understand the gospel in context. Then after he gives them the right foundation, then he gives the message of the cross and Christ rising from the dead. And then notice the response this time around. Some mocked, like last time. Others said, we will hear you again. Maybe God's working on their hearts. That'd be good. Some believed. Some of them got saved. And again, heaven rejoices, right? But here's the thing. Many people, many Christian leaders, many seminary professors will say, but yeah, hold up. Don't use the method Paul used in Acts 17. There weren't many responses there. Use the method Peter used in Acts chapter 2. He got a lot more responses. 
But guys, the method used in Acts chapter 2 requires an Acts 2 type audience with that foundation to understand it. If you think about it, Paul was phenomenally successful. He was preaching to outright pagans with no foundation. And then some believed. It's incredible. Think about it like this. What if you went over to UC Berkeley? I hear that is not Christian. I don't know. And you were to preach the gospel to some of the professors, the atheist professors at UC Berkeley. And some of them got saved. Would you count that a success? Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? All right? You know what Paul had to do? Using terms Greeks and Jews just as types, he had to turn Greeks into Jews. <laughs> he was dealing with people who had the wrong foundation to even understand what he was talking about. So before he could do anything else, he had to get rid of that wrong foundation and replace it with the right one, starting with God's word from the very beginning. And that's a lot more work, and it's a different process than what we are used to. And think about it like this. If you, let's say you're a builder, and you come to a, you hire to build a building, you go to the job site, you get to the job site, and somehow, some way, you didn't know this, but the foundation for the building was already laid. And so your initial response is, yes, it'll save us time, money, effort. That's great. The foundation's there. Wonderful. And then you take a closer look, and as you look at this foundation, uh-oh, that's the wrong one. It's not the right foundation. So what do you got to do? You got to rip up the wrong foundation and replace it with the right one. And that requires a lot more work, a lot more time, and is a different process than what we are used to. So kind of think about putting all this together. Back in the day, years ago, we were much more as a culture like the Jews in Acts chapter 2. America was much more Christianized back in the day. Most people back in the day could speak Christianese. You know, they knew what you mean by sin and God. They had that kind of foundation to some degree or, degree or another. And so by and large, back then, someone could come along like Billy Graham, preach the gospel. Some would, uh, most would understand and some would genuinely respond like they did in Acts chapter 2. But you know what? That has changed. We're now much more like the Greeks over in Acts chapter 17. We've had whole generations brought up in a Greek culture devoid of the knowledge of God. If anything, of course, Christianity is mocked at and scoffed at in our culture today. And if you haven't been keeping up with the times, pay attention unless God intervenes. Pretty much no doubt persecution is coming down the pike. But by the way, has persecution ever hindered the gospel? No, not at all. Now, I pray God brings revival. That'd be my preference. But either way, God will be glorified. But we are seeing a change in our culture it's kind of interesting. Even people today who think they know the Bible, for the most part, don't. A lot of people claim to have knowledge of the Bible, but they don't, they're not really that biblically literate. There was a poll recently done by George Barna um, that interviewed adults in America who claim to be pretty proficient in their knowledge of the Bible. So they asked them some questions. And I'll just give you a couple off the top of my head. Uh, 40% could not name all four Gospels. 60% could not name five of the Ten Commandments which is why they don't obey them, right? They don't know them. Uh, 12%, true story, thought Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. 50% of the high schoolers interviewed thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And then uh, there's one more. The, uh, a large percentage of those interviewed were sure that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Which he is old, I'll grant you, all right? But, 
Uh, even people who think they know the Bible in our day and age, many of them do not. And if you think about it, we've had multiple generations now who have grown up in the Greek culture. Right? They've grown up in the Greek schools. And those schools, they've thrown God, prayer, and the Bible out of those schools and replaced it with the religion of naturalism, also called atheism. Let me just take a quick little pause here. I like to do this just to emphasize what I'm saying. I taught in public schools for 13 years, and my wife did as well. We have friends still in the public schools right now. Are there missionaries in the public schools? Yes. And we should be on our knees for those people praying for them as they are lights in a dark place. So there are missionaries. Don't misunderstand. There are missionaries. But understand this. The system itself is inherently atheistic. When you start with the assumption you can explain all things without God, biology, anthropology, mathematics, physics, literature. You can explain all those things without God, without the Bible. That is the religion of humanism, naturalism, also called atheism. That's the religion being taught today. Now pray for the missionaries, but understand the current of our culture is atheistic by definition. And that's what our kids are engaged in. And Hitler said this, if you own the youth, you'll gain the future. And so today... Multiple generations have a different foundation. So you preach the gospel to them today, and it is foolishness. Now, that's something block foolishness, because they're Greeks. And not just by the Greek schools, but the Greek culture, the Greek pop culture, and maybe most influential of all, they have been turned into Greeks by the Greek culture that has infiltrated much of the church. Or in many cases, we as Christians have compromised with the secular thinking of our day, undermined biblical authority, and as a result of all of this, we have seen multiple generations of our kids who have grown up within our churches change from Jews as a type into Greeks. Funny and sad all at the same time, right? And as a result, two-thirds of our kids are walking away from the faith. And here's the thing. We keep approaching them as if they're Jews. And we wonder why we're losing them. Why? Because they're Greeks. They've got the wrong foundation. They've got the wrong starting point. They're on the wrong road. And if we want to be effective in making disciples and sharing the gospel in a day and age like ours, we need to be like the sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times. Now, in context, they understood it's time for David to be king, but we need to understand our times, the day and age we live, understand the audience of people we're engaging, understanding the battlefield we're on and where the battle's taking place today. We need to have an understanding of our times. And really, the ministry of answers in Genesis, whether you're talking about the Creation Museum or the Ark Encounter or speakers or our curriculums or resources, whatever. Ultimately, what we're trying to do in a real sense is we're focused on turning Greeks into Jews. In a word, we are all about de-Greekizing. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> you might say, you say that's not a word. It's on the screen. <laughs> We've all been Greekized to one degree or another. We need to de-Greekize, taking every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ, standing on this word. And when we stand on this word, is then we can give answers. We can contend for the faith earnestly. Jude 1.3, contend earnestly for the faith. It literally means to, it's that, the picture of hand-to-hand combat, to struggle greatly for the good news, for the Bible, for the truth of the gospel, to give these answers, to give the answer of Jesus Christ, defending God's word where it's being attacked today. Starting at the beginning, proclaiming the truth of God's word and equipping ourselves in the coming generations to start at the beginning, 
and giving them the right foundation. It's then we'll be on the right road. We can answer the skeptical questions of this age, proclaim the gospel boldly by standing on the firm foundation that is the rock that is God's word. But it starts by standing here, starting at the beginning. Now, it's not the only way to share the gospel. It's an effective way in a culture like ours. I want to to draw one last little analogy to kind of bring this home. Um, You guys remember the parable of the sower? The four different types of soil? Only the good soil produced a harvest, right? I'm going to draw an analogy, just an analogy from this parable. I think back in America, there used to be a lot of plowed ground in our culture. Plowed up by the schools and the homes and the churches and so forth. A lot of good plowed ground. And so back then, by and large, someone could come along like Billy Graham and throw out the seed of the gospel, and many would respond. It would take root and produce fruit. But here's the thing. Most of that plowed ground nowadays has all but disappeared. The enemy has come in. He's sown in seeds of destruction. Did God really say, can you really trust the Bible? The seeds of destruction of humanism, evolutionism, millions of years, so forth and so on. And many Christians have unwillingly helped the enemy sow those seeds. And now that plow ground has all but disappeared. And here's the key, Christian. We are standing around. We're looking around like, wow, where did all the good plow ground go? This, this ground's terrible. It's rocky. There are thorns everywhere. This is terrible. Oh, well. And we keep throwing the seed out the same old way. Not truly comprehending that the ground beneath our feet has changed. The culture has changed. And if we want to be effective in reaching the day, we've got to recognize and take action to this change. And really, the way we think of creation evangelism, doing these answers, doing apologetics, if you will, we view it like a bulldozer that's needed today to come in and to clear the land, to plow the ground of the heart of the unbeliever, to get their heart ready for the seed of the gospel. We've got to plow that ground first. And before I continue, uh, let me just say, some places where we go and show this picture, I won't mention any names, California. Um, not only California. We get accused of being anti-environmentalist. And I just want to clear up. The picture's symbolic, all right? Hey, the bulldozer's symbolic. The trees are symbolic. There's no bald eagle or spotted owl in the tree. Nothing like that's going on. It's all good, okay? Just symbolic. Just having fun. Uh, but no, but the reason we need answers to questions like, what about the dinosaurs and where did Cain get his wife? And what about Noah's Ark? How did he get the animals onto the ark? And what about distant starlight? And then... How do you explain all these different people groups if we all come from Adam and Eve? And what about the fossil record and so forth and so on? It's because those answers represent the bulldozer that's needed today to clear the land, to plow the ground of the heart of the unbeliever, to get ready for the seed of the gospel. The answers we need to defend our faith and then boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answers we need to clear the way to share the gospel in a clear and effective manner in our culture today. In a real sense, I say it like this all the time. Heard me say it a couple of times yesterday. We are giving answers to clear the way to give the answer, Jesus Christ. We're giving answers to give the answer. It's interesting. You look at First Peter three fifteen. It's where we get the word apologia, the word apologetics, to give a defense. Is where the word comes from. You look at the context. What is apologetics? Sometimes we think apologetics is, you know, giving all these really heady answers and knowing all about philosophy and debate and every science field out there and so forth. No, apologetics is simply this. It says. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. It's actually in the context of Christians enduring persecution. And, but the idea is like, why do you have hope? Well, it's because of what I believe. And they ask you, well, how do you believe that? How can you believe that in light of science and evolution and archaeology? Well, here's why I believe it. It's the word of God confirmed by real evidence. 
Apologetics is simply telling people what you believe and why you believe it by standing on this word. Because what you believe and why you believe it comes from the word of God. If what you believe does not come from the word of God, you should not believe it. Amen? Somebody? <laughs> All right. So we stand on this foundation. It's then we can answer the questions of this age to get to the answer, Jesus Christ. And again, oh my goodness, this is not about winning debates. Who cares? It's about winning souls. That's what it's about. Amen. Absolutely. And to be clear, we can't win souls. God does that. But we give answers in the gospel. God works through that to change hearts and minds and bring them to himself. But that's why we do it. We give answers to give the answer, Jesus Christ. A few things I'd encourage you to look at as we begin to wrap up here. If you weren't here yesterday, the book, The Lie, and the book already gone, we did sell out, but you can back order those. We'll ship them for free. The great one-two punch for the foundation of why we do what we do. The book, Why Won't They Listen? Not sure if we have those left or not, but it's really good. This book is focused on the paradigm of Acts 2 and Acts 17. Those two different views. If you want more on that, then you can read that book right there, done by Ken Ham, our present CEO. If you do not like to read, we got you covered. All right, DVDs galore. Uh, you can get this one, The Genesis of the Gospel. The Gospel Begins in Genesis, basic idea there. This is basically this talk, me talking on this DVD. So if someone needs to hear this message, wants to share this, that's the DVD you want to get. The book, Ready to Return, quoted some of the stats from that book. This is really eye-opening for Christian parents and leaders as to what's going on in the church today, the direction we are headed, the need for a new reformation, if you will, in the church today. Looking at that, really good stuff. And, of course, the answers we need are in the answers books one through four. And you can get those. Each book answers around 25 to 35 different questions. And, again, I think we sold out of all the answers books. So praise God. But, again, you can back order those. We ship them for free. They're phenomenal resources. We've got those for kids and teens as well. Haven't really mentioned this book yet, but it's a really good one. It might be out too, but demolishing supposed Bible contradictions. Uh, like Pastor said, most people say the Bible has contradictions. They have no idea what they're talking about. All right? Take them to the Word of God. But if they, do have an, if they do have an example, this book deals with most of those. There's a second volume that goes with it as well. You can get those. Really good handy tool. Also, I haven't mentioned this book yet either uh, all day yesterday, but there's two of them. We brought volume one with us. Really, really good book. How do you know the Bible is true. And so the answers books deal with more creation, evolution, foundational nature of the fight. This one deals with more of these manuscripts. So where did God come from? Uh, why there's 66 books? Does the Bible contradict itself? Do miracles happen? What about the resurrection? Is there evidence for that? All sorts of questions like that focus on in this particular book, and those two books. Really, really good. So I encourage you to check those out. And again, if you don't like those, if you don't like books, we do have DVDs for the ADD adults and the teens. So you can check those out. All right. If you missed yesterday, I think the videos are available free from the church. And if you want a different accent with those talks, Ken Ham has his own version of those. He's got a cool Australian accent, and you can buy the curriculum set for that. It's over in the bookstore. It's six to five talks, similar to some of the stuff we covered here yesterday. You can buy that as well for a good small group study. And if you like quick answers, I know we're all busy, don't have a lot of time to read really thick chapters, but if you want a quick, snappy answer, 500 words or less about dinosaurs or carbon-14 dating, then you want to check out this book, Quick Answers to Tough Questions. It's such an incredible book, incredible book because I'm the author. Um, but I don't know. I'm joking about that. But it was a blessing to write the book. It really was because... I like something practical. I mean, so these are short answers. Most of us are really busy. We don't like to read really, really long things. So I'll give you a nice, short answer when someone asks you about these issues. 500 words or less per answer. 33 questions answered in the book. Really helpful tool. Very useful. Also, uh, the 10-minute Bible journey walks you through the Bible chronologically. 
Uh, 52 10-minute reads, incredible for fighting against biblical literacy, giving you biblical, biblical history for the gospel. Fantastic book. And don't, don't forget about the YouTube special. What we'll do is we'll keep the bookstore in the gym open for 20, 30 minutes after we're done. Then we've got to shut it down, pack it up, and I'll be heading out later on tomorrow. But, but yeah. And then we've got the Begin book as well. thought I'd mention that to you. It's on special in the bookstore. I think we still got a few of these left. This book does kind of what we suggest in this talk. What it does, it gives you Genesis 1 to 11, the actual text with a commentary. Then we give you Exodus 20 to show the law you need for a Savior. And then the Gospel of John for the Gospel, the Book of Romans for theology. Then Revelation 21, 22, the return of Christ. And we summarize biblical history as you go through those different texts. And then we'll give you a commentary. And then in the back of the book, we're answering six of, or actually ten of the most asked questions today used to undermine biblical authority. And then we give a clear and powerful presentation of the gospel. And so that's why I call it the begin. It's a great place to start. And it's really good for non-believers and new believers. And at conferences, we sell it for three bucks, which is basically our cost for those books. You can buy a bunch of those. And keep those in your car, hand those out as like kind of a thick track or something like that. Uh, we do this, my wife and I do this all the time. Uh, we keep a few in our cars. So, good thing for witnessing. If, you, if you're all about that, I hope you are. Check out that book. The Answers a Magazine comes out six times a year now instead of four. It is incredible. It deals with contemporary issues. Please check that out. For each of you, subscribe. You get a free DVD. It's a great deal. You can check that out in the gym. And it's time for the newsletter. If you would like, it comes once a month. Keeps you aware what's happening in the ministry. Also, cool little calendar in the back of the newsletter. Tells you where speakers will be. And my wife loves it because if I forget to tell her I'm going somewhere, <laughs> she can look on the calendar and I get in trouble. All right, so... But it is helpful for knowing where we will be as an organization. And then we've got the website, answersofgenesis.org. As I mentioned yesterday, if you're like, wow, I mean, I would love to buy everything, but man, we can't swing it. It's, just, it's tight right now. We get that, okay? So go to the website. They're lit- I mean, literally, I'm not making this up, thousands of free articles. You're a college student. You have no money. I understand. Use the website, all right? Thousands of free articles, hundreds of free videos on the website for you to utilize to get answers and equip others as well. And then you always feel free to connect with me. Ask me questions while I'm here. If you got any, it's while I'm here to serve the body of Christ. But if you got anything you think of later on, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter, and we can engage there, do a blog as well. I'd love to help in any way I can uh, later on. So a lot of stuff there. I uh, appreciate your patience with that. I'm going to end with one last story, just to keep the main thing the main thing. One of my favorites, a um, story about a captain who was just beloved by his sailors, and they could never sing his praises enough. And one day their ship came across another ship that had wrecked and there were hundreds of people in the water and the water was so cold, people were dying every moment. So the captain quickly gathered his men together and said, guys, listen, people are dying every second. Do everything you can. Use every resource we have to save as many as possible. And his sailors, they just looked at him and said, captain, wow, you're amazing. You know that? Your love for those people, your leadership, and the words you spoke to us right now, we're so inspired and motivated. You are incredible. Man, we're so glad you're our captain. He said, okay, thank you. But right now I need you to obey my instructions and save as many as possible. But you know what? Instead of doing that, they just ignored his instructions but they kept on singing his praises. And you know, as crazy as that idea sounds, how often do we do that very same thing as Christians? And we sing God's praises as we should, 
but then we ignore his instructions and ignore a lost and dying world around us. Let us be prepared and willing to love the lost, to preach the gospel, to give an answer for the hope that we have, a blessed hope, an eternal hope, a free gift from our Heavenly Father. Let's be prepared to give answers about that hope that God might work through us to draw a lost and dying world to himself through his word, through his gospel, for his glory. And think about this, Christian. We have the honor and the privilege of being part of his eternal plan. He uses decorated dust like us to accomplish eternal, infinite things. Unbelievable. Only God could do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the time to gather together. God, as I look around, what a blessing it is to see so many people uh, coming from different walks of life who are here to study your word, to know about you, to see you glorified. Uh, Lord, I know, as I said last service, every time I tell that story, I'm convicted. I truly am. Help us, God, to repent of when we get comfortable in this world where we're too focused on ourself and on the things of this world and not the world around us, where we, we praise you, but then we ignore your instructions. And there are people dying all around us. And we, we willfully forget that every person spends eternity somewhere. Every person will be part of the ultimate statistic. Everyone will die. They will face their maker. And Lord, we as Christians, oh my goodness, we have the cure for their disease. And most of them, they don't know they're sick. Help us, God, to love those people. First of all, to love you, to want to honor you, revere you, and be faithful to you. And in response to our love for you, we're faithful. We go and share with these people that we love who are made in your image. That you're sick. I know you may not recognize it, but you've got this thing called sin. You're born with it. We need a Savior. Christ came to die for you. He paid the price you could never pay. You could never be good enough, friend. It requires perfection. Only God can do that. Trust Christ. Put your faith in Him. Help us, God, have a passion for those people, for your word, for your gospel, for your truth. God, you know, I feel like I'm speaking to myself probably more than anybody here. May we repent. May we love you with everything we have. May we desire to be used by you for your glory. Because God, ultimately we are here to know you and to make you known. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.